0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times being tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 582. The Survival Podcast. It is a Friday. It is the 7th of January two thousand eleven, and this is our first listener call-in show of the new year. I gotta tell you, I am working on some calls here today that were from November. So I'm trying to get caught up on the calls. We had you know a couple weeks off. Um had a special show, and then we had the Christmas week and and all that, so I'm like two weeks behind on these. So I'll try to get caught up for you guys. That said, I do kind of bust these calls out pretty good. Um, 866-65-THINK Again, 866-65-THINK Leave your message in two minutes or less and we'll try to get you on a show like this Probably a better idea to call in a question than to email in a question if you want to make sure it gets on the air Most calls do get on the air Advice for your calls Try to call from a landline or a good cell phone connection Try not to call from a car uh, Try not to call from outside in a windstorm You're going to hear some calls today that I put on With some background noise that may be hard to hear, I do it when I can. I will tell you that as I went through calling calls today, I had to throw away about 10 calls that were basically good questions that had too much distortion to put on the air. And when you hear how much distortion some of the stuff I let on has, you'll realize that it's important that you find a quiet location for at least two minutes when you make these calls. Calling from a vehicle with the window down, which I know some of you have done just by the sound. I know the sound. Um, It's going to really garble the call, and people can't hear it. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our housekeeping and start taking your calls today. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. I just did a show on herbology. If you want more information on herbology, if you want more information on uh, all of that stuff, check out Western Botanicals. Dr. Kyle Christensen over there uh, has an extensive catalog of raw herbs. Uh, everything is either wildcrafted or organically grown. And if you don't want to put together your own stuff and you want to just be able to buy pre-made mixtures and ointments and things like that, they have a tremendous selection of that as well. Again, Western Botanicals. And remember, they have a program, 25% off every single thing in their catalog. 25% Costs $50 a year to buy that preferred membership. That's a great deal. It really is. I mean, if you buy, you know, uh, a few things a few times a year, you're going to get your money back on it. But if you're in the member support brigade, you get that for free. All you got to do is call them up, give them a special code, and you'll get that set up for free. So that pays for your member's brigade alone right there. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a company I love because they make knife building accessible to everybody. Whether you're a guy like me that's never really messed around with knife building much more than maybe fixing up a handle and sharpening a blade, or if you're a master bladesmith that just wants raw materials, everybody can find what they're looking for at KnifeKits.com if you're interested in learning the craft of making blades and making knives. So get on over to KnifeKits.com and check them out today. Uh, Next up, remember to connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. That's our social media outlets. Um, I haven't put a lot out on YouTube the last couple weeks because of, well, You can probably still hear my voice as bad enough as it is. I don't need to be doing any more this week. But I have a ton of stuff planned. Even during this move and this transition, we're finding things that we put aside to do reviews on or talk about uh, as we're packing. We're kind of staging to do videos on them before they head head, uh, north to Arkansas. So, got a lot of YouTube videos that will be coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, We're actually going to be getting up there, I think, two weeks from now. Uh, to do some final things before we really start moving stuff in. Uh, maybe we'll take the camera up there. So YouTube, make sure you subscribe. Facebook and Twitter, guys, I get information all the time from you guys about things that are going on in the political space or the economic space and all, and I only have room for so, for so much on the show. I put a ton of that stuff out on Facebook and Twitter. That's reason enough alone to be our friend on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You'll find links for that on the website, uh, survivalpodcast.com, of course. Last but not least, consider joining the MSB. That's the Members Support Brigade. Do, do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get great discounts, uh, like the one I mentioned for Western Botanicals. By the way, Knife Kits does a discount for the Members Support Brigade as well. Uh, so a lot of the sponsors do that. A lot of vendors that aren't sponsors provide discounts there. So it's a great value. Um, and with that, let's go ahead and start taking your questions.
1: Hey, Jack. Phil in Tucson. Again, brilliant episodes on money. And you can disregard my question yesterday because, as I figured, you answered it in part two. However, here's a new one I pose. How, what effect would a global currency have on our current problem with the Federal Reserve? Would it negate the situation or would it compound it exponentially? Uh, pretty sure I know the answer to that already, but I wanted to hear you tell it in your oh-so-eloquent manner. Thanks, buddy. Have fly.
0: Alright, to make sure that everybody out there listens to my entire answer, I'm gonna have to start out with it's gonna be negative so that what I say next doesn't lead you to the wrong conclusion. So it's a bad thing. And the reason I say that is because what I'm about to say next, if you didn't hear that first, you might think that, uh, you might get angry and throw your iPod down because it's only the first part of the answer. I'm gonna answer this in two ways. First is the technical answer. If we just look at it from straight how the question's asked, what would it do with our problems with the Federal Reserve as far as the way we experience those problems? Initially, it actually might have what would be perceived by most people to be a positive effect. Um, but again, just like debt can look positive in the beginning, if I give a drunk a credit card, he looks great for a few days. Uh, but eventually he's back on the street and nobody can pay the bill. So that way is what I mean. And here's why. If we take the collective wealth of the entire globe and we put them into a single, um, a single vault, so to speak. It's not really a vault, but a metaphorical vault. And the the, the currency of the world is now uniform. And people, and we, we call it the, the, the global. All right, so it's the global currency. So it's the global, like the euro or the Amero or anything like that. So it's the global. So we all spend, you know, units of globals now, uh, earth currency. Um, It does facilitate trade, exchange, things like that. It's not really going to change anybody's standard of living or the local economic cost of things. So what I mean by that is in uh, Mexico, if you go out and buy a, a bag of oranges, it costs considerably less. Um, than it does in, uh, to buy them here in America. Because uh, there's a, there's two types of a currency exchange. There is a, an exchange rate between the two nations and there's a local currency strength. And the local currency strength would probably stay pretty, pretty level at first. So if it actually costs you to buy that bag of oranges, no matter how many pesos it is, 50 cents in, in, in U.S. dollars, let's say, if it was based on the dollar, based whatever they was based on, it would probably continue to cost that with the new currency at the local level. So that would allow stability. And all of the banks coming together in a common system and all of the credits being put together, um, yeah, okay, it would start to look better. Here's the problem with this. Since the entire system is based on debt, who owes who? Think about it that way. So now what we're doing is we're playing a giant poker game where everybody's chips are the same color. And eventually what we end up with is a system that's still going to have to be based on debt. There's still going to have to be one nation or one entity owing another or we have to get rid of a debt-based currency altogether and go to a pure fiat global currency, which could be even worse. In in effect, what you're going to end up with is a very a recipe for every time there's inflation or deflation, it's at the global level now. No pockets of stability, and eventually the whole world being in hock to the elite few that are actually running the global Fed. Let's call it that. So it won't fix anything in reality, but it might be able to be painted as a solution early on. I don't know it's what the, the, the globalists might not really want it because it does have this inherent issue with how do we create these exchange games. So I think that the globalists, the true globalists would really prefer to have maybe four regional currencies. Uh, f- so there, there's still a way to exchange things and play their game. Now, let's talk about any time we go from having US dollars to Ameros or Globals or North Americanos or whatever the hell it is. One thing that a nation must have to be a sovereign is its own money. We cannot be a nation without our currency. It's the very definition of being a nation. We always hear about how the the uh, the American Revolution was fought over taxation. It was fought less over taxation and more over how those taxes had to be paid. In the colonies at the time, each state issued its own currency. And most of it was in paper script. Pennsylvania had its own currency, its own money. And it wasn't necessarily gold backing. And usually it was, if there was any gold backing, it was a, a, a fractional system. And inside the colonies and in, in between the colonies, it worked fine. But the King of England said, you shall pay taxes to England, and you will pay them in gold. So it undermined the local currency. That was the bigger cause of the revolution than the taxes without representation was the destruction of the colonist currency, because the colonist currency was debt-free. So the entire point of being a sovereign republic was sovereignty over the currency. And that's why there was such heated debate through the early years, and through the Jackson years, and up into the Lincoln years, and the conflict between central banks and the free republic. And... Thomas Jefferson told us that if we ever let a central bank rise and control our money, that we would wake up prisoners and slaves in the land that was conquered by our forefathers. That's paraphrasing, but it's basically what he said. And there is a reason for that. And that is because of the sovereignty of a national currency. So this is my issue. With the gold bugs that want a private currency system, each bank issuing its own currency backed by gold purely, a private gold standard instead of a public gold standard, it effectively destroys the U.S. dollar. I have gold script from Bank of America. You have gold script from Citibank. Where's our sovereignty? See, my belief is, again, if a nation is to be sovereign, it must have its own currency. So a global currency, a terrible idea. Um, what it would do technically, probably initially make things better and eventually make things far worse. Because the whole system is a disaster in the first place. Because it's all based on debt. But, if you really want to be a sovereign nation, you have to have your money. And if you doubt that, you can look at things like, why is the Queen of England on the Canadian currency, the New Zealand currency, and the Australian currency? Because those three nations aren't sovereigns. They're still considered colonies. And they still answer to the Queen. And the England still has an extreme influence over those three nations. Why do you think they created the Euro? Was it to facilitate trade? No, it was to take away sovereignty. It was to try to turn Europe into a United States. And take away the sovereignty of France by taking away the Franc. Take away the sovereignty of Italy by taking away the lira. To take away the sovereignty of Germany by taking away the mark. A sovereign nation has a currency they control and they manage themselves. And I believe it's best done as a public currency and we keep the bankers out. Because if you want to look at the common thing that's destroyed every economy, more so than whether it's fiat or gold back or whatever, it's always the bankers. They create the crisis, present the solution. Alright, let's go ahead and take another one.
1: Hi, Jack. Aaron from Colorado. My question today relates to green coffee beans. I've heard a lot of people talk about coffee as being one of those great commodities to have after it hits the fan. So I wanted to find out what you knew about green coffee beans, how you store them, and uh, what are the means that you can use to roast them for brewing. Thank you, Jack. Bye-bye.
0: Good question. Let me answer it with my experience. Uh, my understanding is that if you want to really store coffee long-term, I'm talking years and years and years, that green beans are the only way to go. So coffee that has not been roasted, vacuum-sealed, airtight, sealed from light, that, that has a storage capacity similar to any bean. Uh, even though coffee's not the same as a as a pinto bean, they get the same type of storage capacity, which is almost infinite and the uh, roasted and uh, uh, roasted beans and or roasted and ground beans don't have that long-term storage capacity the issue with roast let's start with the roasting how do you roast beans um they need to be roasted between a temperature of about 370 and 540 degrees depending on airflow and to get a good even roast they need to be constantly agitated and moved around so one way you can do this is to like get of one of those popcorn poppers for the for the top of the stove that has the crank on it that you turn that kind of moves the kernels around without shaking the pan, and uh, you can try to figure out the temperature, use a thermometer, get it to where you want it, kind of figure out where you need to set your your stove burner at, whether it's gas or electric, what have you. Try to maintain that temperature range and, and agitate the beans. You can also put them into an oven. Um but you really it's hard to do with an electric oven. It's gas is more specific, more exacting in temperature. You can roast them at about four hundred and fifty degrees, but because you don't get as much agitation with that, you get an uneven roast. Um there's a machine there's machines you can buy, cost about hundred bucks. Uh you put in a small amount of coffee, throw it in there, plug it in the wall, hit a button, and it'll roast it for you. But that uses electricity, so if you're really in a long term storage situation, would you have the electricity? So all of this tells us that roasting green coffee is kind of a pain in the butt. And if you're like me, um, you probably use coffee all the time. I drink coffee every morning I get up, we make a pot of coffee. So it's something I'm constantly using. I don't know how much long-term storage people are really looking for with coffee, but I can tell you that I've used one two-year-old coffee with nothing special done, just the vacuum-sealed packs we're big fans of community coffee and we're big fans of Starbucks coffee. They come in the, you know, the, uh, it's kind of the, the foil, thick, very thick foil, vacuum sealed packages. And we just keep that and we keep rotating it. And we probably have enough to go about a year on coffee. And the coffee that we drink today was bought a year ago and may have been on the shelf for six months. I don't notice any issues with it. Uh, now you are better off buying whole bean than ground. Uh, so generally we have a, we have a coffee grinder. And, um, you know, we use that to grind our coffee. If we had to grind our coffee manually, we could use a manual grinder to do that. So unless you're looking to store more than a year's worth, or you don't use it and you're looking to store it just as a commodity, I think you're better off with roasted coffee. Um, I Um Somebody may tell me I'm wrong, but until you show me my coffee going bad in six months, I don't get it. Um, I think it's a neat idea. I think if you want it for barter and trade and you want to store up, you know, a tremendous amount of it, fine. But my experience has been it actually costs more to buy green coffee beans than roasted coffee beans. It's just been my experience as well. So I'd stick to the roasted stuff, especially if you're a coffee drinker and you're going to be constantly rotating it. And um, it was one of the things that got me off my Starbucks habit where I was dropping three, four bucks a day at Starbucks. And uh, that put a lot of money back into the household. I started to realize, hey, we're storing everything else. Let's store the coffee too. Let's get a good coffee maker. And that's one of the biggest things I can advise you guys. Uh, if you are a coffee drinker and you like to go out to grab the, the gourmet coffees once in a while, nothing wrong with that. I occasionally still go by there and get, you know, something that's fresh brewed from them. And there, there is something about the perfect temperature of water and all that they do. But the better the coffee maker, uh, the better the coffee. And uh, French Press is probably some of the best coffee you can make, especially the deeper, richer ones. And remember, we have the Survival Podcast French Press mugs in the gear shop. Check those out because they'll work anytime, uh, any place you can boil water. Uh, let's go take that next question.
2: Hey, Jack. This is Andy out here at Fort Bragg again. And um <clears throat> unique question, well, kind of a different question for you. I like going to historical sites, and they said that uh, years ago that before we had central heating, that, uh, where colder regions of the country at nighttime, people would put rocks in the fire. They'd take those, they'd wrap them up and put them inside, uh, in their bed at night so the heat from the rock would help to keep the bed warm. Um, I know it's gonna sound crazy, but is, is, is it as simple as that? Does it really, is there one rock that's better than another? Uh, do you just kind of figure it out, eyeball it, you know? Um, starting to uh, go camping with my son now, and I figured on cold nights, It'd be something, maybe throw a rock in the fire, try that out in a sleeping bag. But do you know very much about it? Uh, like I said, is a rock just a rock? Is one type of rock different than another type of rock? Um, anyway, I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are. And uh, I was thinking about doing it in my house, but I think my wife would throw me out of the bed if I put a warm rock in the bed. So, But I think there are some pretty good applications, so I'd appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Bye.
0: Well, it's pretty much, it is what they say it is, and it does work, and it, it'll work to varying degrees depending on the size of the rocks, the number of the rocks, how hot you get them, uh, and what you wrap them in. If you, you, the, the key is to try to wrap them in a way that prevents them from being so hot that if you touch them, they burn you, uh, but yet, and, and holds in some heat, but yet allows the heat to radiate where you don't completely hold it in. It's just a method of thermal mass heating. Um, it 's just like if you have a, the huge old fireplaces with the great big stone hearths and you 'd get that fire going burning hot, and that the stone hearth would absorb the heat and it would help uh, maintain an even temperature even after the fire had died down, uh, or using a rocket mass heater use a masonry heater, all these things work by the same way. This is a low tech method, and if we take two or three nice warm rocks, we put them into bed under covers, well, then we have that radiating heat there. Now, as far as what kind of rocks to use, there's definitely a difference. Uh, in an ideal world, world, you would use something called soapstone. If you can get your hands on soapstone, uh, it's probably the best thing uh, for it. Soapstone, a lot of stoves are made with soapstone inlets in them because it has such great heat retention and very slow dispersal um, uh, capabilities. Certain things like sandstone would be very poor. It's not very dense, likely to shatter in the fire. Uh, things like heavy granite and things like that would probably be your best bet to try for it. You do have to be careful with rocks and fires. Um, rocks put in fire too long can fracture, and that can actually be dangerous. So it's generally safer to pay, place rocks toward the edge of the fire, a little bit into it, but not necessarily right dead on super hot coals, uh, because especially rocks that maybe have, uh, some fracturing already in them and may have a little bit of moisture in there can become damn right explosive in the middle of a fire. So it's something that's not real common, but it can happen and you do need to be aware of it. So I would try it by using, uh, the, again, the edge of the fire, allowing the rocks to heat to a certain temperature, remove, give it a shot. I mean, they did it back in the old days and they just did it. So it'll work. Um, it's not a perfect solution. But it's a, it's a way to kind of bring heat in with you in a situation where you can't be directly in front of the fire for the entire evening. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call.
1: Hey, Jack, I had a question about, um, pulling up plants and changing of the seasons with your garden. Um, you just, you had mentioned in one of the podcasts about chopping and dropping, um, for the, some of the plants. What, I know when you got some of the weeds and things if you chop and drop the roots are still there and they're going to grow back and you don't want them so you've got to pull those up by the roots well your beneficial plants that you that you're pulling and uh, you know chopping and dropping how many of those are going to come back on their own i mean uh, somebody who's pretty much a novice when it comes to to uh, gardening and planting um how would we know what's going to come back and what isn't um from the roots is it mostly just stuff that has tubers or some kind of a root ball type of a situation, or um, are there other things? And and is that necessarily a bad thing to chop and drop and let them come back from the same root system going into the next season? Um, But just, you know, I was wondering, how do you know what is or isn't going to come back and what do you need to pull up by the roots and what can you chop and drop? Uh, Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: Well, good question, and it all comes down to identification of species, and identification of species for two reasons. One, if it's a species of plant that I like having around, it's not going to get, and I know that from its characteristics, it's not too invasive, it's not going to get out of hand, and uh, have a root ball that's going to keep coming back, I may allow it to come back. It also depends on where exactly it is if it's my zone one vegetable herb garden i'm going to be a little quicker to yank dandelions the hell out of my raised beds Then in my zone two area where I've got different guilds of planting going on and I've got understory plants and herbaceous layers and my secondary trees and and, and vines and stuff like that, I'm, you know, I'm perfectly content to allow dandelion to exist there. So first is I gotta identify the species and determine where exactly am I dealing with this and do I want to use it as wildlife feed? Do I want to use it for my livestock? Dandelion greens great to feed to our rabbits, right? So again, in the right location, dandelion's okay, but in my garden, it's got to go uh, because it will become more and more invasive because it's hardier than just about any of the annual plantings that I'll put in there. Now, as I'm in, 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 in identifying this plant, there's an, the other thing that I need to figure out: is the plant? There's only three types of, of plants really in the world: There there's there's annuals, biannuals, and perennials. And any herbaceous-style plant is going to fit one of those three descriptions. Annual means it grows this year, and it doesn't grow next year. If it does grow next year, it has to drop seed to grow next year and reseed itself. But the root structure of an annual will die at the end. So if I have a weed that I know is an annual weed, and I want to chop and drop it, all I have to do is watch it, and I can let it grow. As long as it's not over-competing with my existing garden... And I want to let it grow. I can watch that weed right until the point where it starts to form buds. So flower budding. And I can chop it at that point. I can chop it back so where I can let it regrow if I want to. Depending on where it is and what it does. And I can let it, you know, it's, and I got to really pay attention when you chop it back. If you don't kill it, odds are it's going to grow back even faster and bud even quicker. Because now it's trying to get, it's trying to reproduce before the end of the season. I can chop it to the ground, and if it's an annual, odds are this is going to kill it. Not always, but mostly. Most annual plants, if you chop them ground level, they're not going to come back. So if you don't know what it is, and you chop it ground level and it comes back, it's probably a perennial or a biannual. A biannual is like parsley. Biannual, um, it'll grow the first year. It'll you know die back from a frost, or it'll hold through the winter if it's in a mild climate it'll grow the second year, and most biannuals grow a different style of leaf or a different structure their second year. So parsley stays that nice, curled, beautiful parsley the first year, and the second year it sends up these big high shoots and forms these flower heads, it drops seed, and then it dies, in the, it dies at the end of the second year, and it doesn't come back again. So if you want to establish parsley, you have to do it really, really thick to where it'll constantly be receding itself, and there'll be some first and second generation each year. So if you have a weed that's a biannual weed, again, if you're chopping and dropping before the buds, the longest it's going to be there for is a two-year cycle, and you're going to limit its reproduction. Perennial weeds are the ones, you cut them, they come back. You cut them, they come back. You cut them, they come back. A dandelion is a perfect example. Uh, A lot of docks are, are, are like that. So It's about getting a good guide to the plant life in your area and knowing what you're dealing with. Lamp's quarter, an annual. Big, giant, tall weed, cut it down, it ain't coming back. But if I let it go to seed, there'll be more than ever next year. Not necessarily bad. I love to eat lamp's quarters. I grow lamp's quarters. I encourage them. But if you don't want them or you don't want them in a certain area, you need to take immediate action even though they're an annual because if you let them go to seed, they will drop literally pounds of seed from one large plant. So... The way you make the determination is, do I do I get a benefit from this plant? What is that benefit? Is this plant conducive to my area? Do I want it on my property at all? And most times, the answer is going to be, yeah, just it's about where do I want it. Uh, trying to eradicate a species that grows well is usually a mistake, because if nothing else, it is organic matter. It does have root systems that open up the ground. It does prevent erosion. It probably can be fed to something. Um, but then there's places where you don't want it. So... Make the determination based on the type of plant, what its reoccurrence is, and as far as will it come back when you chop it, is it an annual or a perennial? Those are your big ones. Most of your biannuals aren't that big a deal. Most of your biannuals are things that you're going to want to grow. Swiss chard, uh, beets, uh, parsley, those are all common biannuals. There are some invasive weed-type species that are biannual as well, uh, but they're not going to be your bigger problem. So annual weeds cut them before they bloom, and no problem. Perennial weeds, if you want them gone, the roots have to come out of the ground. Let's go ahead and take the next question.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Emily in Plano, Texas. And we have a question for you, my husband and I. Um, We know that you're moving out to rural Arkansas, and right now we're looking at rural southeast Oklahoma, so just pretty much the other side of the border. And we're wondering what internet service looks like in an area like that and if you could just give us some idea we don't know if we'd be able to get clear or we'd have to do satellite and and you know the cost of satellite and all that good stuff so i'd appreciate any insight and input you have thank you and have a great day
0: there's two answers to that the generic answer if you're really in a rural area is it sucks um, and your only really decent option is satellite uh, internet from someone like HughesNet or, or someone like that. And from the people I talk to using it, it's not that bad. Now, they do have a fair use policy. If you go over a certain amount of upload or download a day, you're going to trip that and then basically they'll turn you off, but they throttle your speed back. But unless you're streaming video all the time or something like that, you're not going to generally exceed that. Watching the occasional video clip, maybe a video clip a day or three or four or a couple dozen, depending on how long they are on YouTube, uh, you're not going to have a problem with that. They're pretty good with um, compression on YouTube now as well. From my research, even uploading my audio files every day not going to be that big of a problem. It'll take longer than my nice DSL connection that I have now, but if I'm going to start uploading videos and I'm starting to, you know, my videos will range 100 meg to 200, 300 meg. Even if I'm not going to go over the allowance because I'm going to do just one. Uh, I'm gonna be going down into town to hit a hotspot or something like that to do those, or probably have to get a, uh, again, like, you know, I've has been saying I'm probably gonna get office space in town in a hot springs where DSL is available. So for the daily user, it's gonna be satellite. Now that said, broadband penetration is much better than it's been before. And if this is important to you, you need to balance your remoteness with, you know, internet access. And one big thing, the first question is, is cable TV available? Or do I have to get satellite for for TV? If you can get cable TV today, in most locations, the cable provider has some sort of internet access. If there's no DSL in the area, area and no WiMAX or wireless product like Clear, um, you're probably going to pay more for it than you would otherwise because they know they have a monopoly. Uh, that's why, you know, HughesNet is so expensive, is because they know. They know if you're going to that, you don't have a choice. So, you know, but if you look for cable, if you have at least have cable access, you probably have internet access. And then there are a lot of rural communities where you can be even out of peace, And there's, you know, now they're 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 you're bringing DSL to those areas with remote pops and things like that. For me personally, with as remote as I chose to be, it's satellite or the highway. I mean, it really is. There's, there, I cannot get cable television. Um, we're lucky to have phone service as far as I'm concerned, and I don't even know that I will install a, a phone line with our cell phones. Maybe it might be the only thing that we do. Other than it might be nice to have a phone line and, and go ahead and have some old-fashioned dial-up for a guaranteed slow but guaranteed connection uh, if we ever should need it for that. Um, so that's really the answer there. Um, the horror stories and the bad things you've heard about satellite... I'll tell you, a lot of them come from several years ago. Uh, Cam Mather was on the show recently. He uses satellite internet up in Canada. can't remember the name of his company, but it's basically the same, the same technology, the same infrastructure that HughesNet here in the States is. Uh, I think Wild Blue is another one. Um, the people that I've talked to using them now, when they have negative things to say, it generally comes back to they're comparing it to a great big fat all-on DSL connection. And it's not going to be that. But if you were on dial-up for a week and went to satellite, you'd probably be pretty happy with it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Oh, one more option there. Um, I have an AT&T um, little stick uh, for wireless internet that plugs into a USB port on a computer. Um, and that works pretty Gone good. It's iffy at my bug out location because we don't really even get that that booming of a cell signal. Uh, So sometimes it'll drift and I have to reconnect. But when it's connected, and generally I get about a good hour's use out of it before I have to do a reconnection, um, I get plenty plenty sufficient Internet access for emails and uploading photos and posting things. Uh, I have uploaded a show with it. And the issue there is that it was quite slow. The upload speed on those, just like a lot of DSL products and everything, is considerably slower than the download speed. Uh, I've also sat in town where I've got a booming signal with it, and it's a totally different experience. Um, it works really well if you have a good, solid, heavy uh, cell phone um, signal. And I think that it, uh, we have AT&T because of the legacy issues, and it's what we've always had. I'm really considering when we move, Moving over to maybe Verizon, uh, and my 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 experience with people using Verizon, especially in that area, is they're much happier with data speeds than they are with AT and T. Um, so I threw that in at the end. Now let's go ahead and take the next question.
1: Hey Jack, I appreciate what you're doing there with the Survivalist podcast and everything. I had a quick question about owning a small business. Uh, I have a possible opportunity coming up that might involve owning a small business within the next five years or so and uh, i was just wondering your advice on such a such a thing if if it would be a good idea to do something like that right now considering the economy and possible regulations you know to be imposed in the future so just wanted to comment on that thanks a lot bye
0: Well, even if you haven't looked at the little podcast I did a few episodes of called Five Minutes with Jack with Business, you should know my answer to this question because the Survival Podcast is, of course, a small business. Dare I say, a micro business in the small business world. It's enough to provide, um, you know, my living and my wife's living and, and, and do that fairly well. Um, it's not big enough to hire one full time employee and still pay the bills. Uh, so that's a pretty small business. That said, I feel like it's a very stable business. My income is split up amongst all the members and all the sponsors, so I don't rely on one customer, and it's pretty stable. So I feel much more comfortable right now owning a business than I would if I had a job. Because if I fail, it's because I've chosen to fail. And if 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 the, the economy so craps the bed that... All of my sponsors have to pull out, and all of my listeners have to pull out. If it's that bad, especially in the genre I'm in, well, um, I'm probably living off my preps at that point, and you guys probably are too. And I think that in any economy, until we go down the toilet to oblivion, and we're we're in that long-term, shit-hit-the-fan scenario, even if we're as bad as the Great Depression, the business owner is more stable than the employee. The business owner has control. If I build a business up to a five-employee business, as much as I love people that work for me, as much as I've taken a bullet for people that have worked for me in the past, as many times as I can't tell you in hard times, where when I've had to cut expenses, I've always started with my own salary, and I'll do that for so long. But in the end, I'm going to put food on my table, and I can lay off all five of those employees, and if I have to work 18 hours a day, I can keep some income coming in to take care of my family. On the regulation issue, well, they might do this, and they might do that. Well, they might do a lot of things. And I'll say the same thing I tell people when they say, well, so-and-so might. First of all, folks, if you have little kids listening, and you don't like it when I say something kind of curt sometimes, maybe it's time to pause the mic and listen and decide if you want them to hear this or not. But my woodshop teacher, when I was 15-year-old in high school, we were talking about hunting deer, and I said, well, if this and if that, he said, Spirico, come here. He pulled me to the side so the other kids didn't say, he said, let me tell you something. If your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. So don't worry about if, worry about what you need to get done. That stuck with me. I was 15, I still remember that. Uh, So maybe you can tell your kids that. I just wanted to, that's one of them ones that I think might infuriate a person or two and get them mad. We're listening in the car and he said that, that type of thing. Anyway, so don't worry about if, worry about what is, and worry about building. And as far as, well, they might do something and take it away, I look at that like when people say, well, if you own land, they might put an eminent domain, and they might, well, you know what, I'm going to own my land, and if they're going to take it, they're going to have to damn well take it. And they're going to have to take it with me resisting them every single step of the way. If you want to regulate my business out, you're going to have to do it with me resisting you and fighting you and adapting to you every step of the way. Now, the other side of this. So I do think it would be a good idea For anybody out there that wants a business to build one, whether you buy one and expand it or buy one and maintain it or build it from the ground up, I would definitely do it. But if you don't have the attitude I just described or if you can't instill it in yourself, you have no business being in business because you will not succeed. Being in business for yourself is the most rewarding thing in the world, but at times it is the most difficult thing in the world. In the end, every day you're going to wake up, you're going to go brush your teeth and shave and brush your hair or take a shower or whatever, but you're going to stand in front of a mirror and the guy looking back at you is carrying 100% of the weight and responsibility. And if you're going to do that, you have to have the attitude, if somebody gets in my way, I will knock them over. If somebody is in front of me and moving too slow, I will shove them out of the way. I am going to have success with what I do, Period. And it has to be more than the positive. I can't tell you how many people get into a business and start reading all these positive affirmations and things like that. And I believe in that to a point. But the action is more important than the affirmation. The two together are unstoppable. But if you don't really mean I'll knock you over if you're in the way of my business, it's not going to work. You're better off as an employee. That said, I think this is inside of every human being. And I think only society and I think only the world as a whole and the propaganda and the desire by the big conglomerates to make you wear a dunce hat and sit in a cubicle and everything they've done to make that happen, I think that's what's beat it out of the human spirit. So you need it to be successful. I believe you have it, but you need to connect with it if you're going to do it. You need to be willing to fight. You need to be willing to kick ass and take names. And you need to be willing to work harder than you've ever worked in your life to get a business really thriving. There is a point with a business where you build enough momentum and running a business, becomes, especially if you do it strategically, becomes much easier and much less work than a job will ever be. It ain't overnight, and generally it's longer than in one to two years. Um this show has gotten to be kind of that way for me. But now I have all these new plans on what I want to do once I get this mess out in front of me and I'll go through another year or two of working harder than I did in the first part of it. But it's all about building that vehicle to the point where a lot of it can run on its own. But God, you gotta have fortitude, you gotta have attitude, and you can't worry about what if. Remember what I said about that. Alright, let's go ahead and take another question. And on this next question, I actually had two callers call in just a couple calls apart. I'm going to play both of their questions because it's on the same subject. They're coming at it from slightly different angles. I think it'll give us more perspective, and then I'll do my best to answer this one because it's kind of a tough one. Here we go.
3: Yeah, Jack, this is Jack in southern Oklahoma, and I would like to know what your opinion is on WikiLeaks. Uh, I know you have background in the military. Do you think that this is something that's going to hurt our military? Um, You know, it brings out a lot of issues here, uh, between the State Department. It also brings out some things in Iraq and Afghanistan. I can see where some of that could be hurting our military. What do you think about some of the stuff with the, with the uh, State Department? I mean, what is it? Is this helping to show some corruption in our government or is it something that's really going to hurt our troops, going to hurt our country as a whole? I mean, what do you think is going to do to our economy? Um, I love to hear your opinions on politics and the economy. Uh, you're one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to the economy and, and politics. I really would like to hear your opinion on this. I searched the the uh, the survivalpodcast.com. I didn't find any information on WikiLeaks. Um, so I would really like to hear your opinion on the whole thing. Uh, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Bye. Uh,
1: as far as my question goes, uh, I was just wondering how you feel about the situation with uh, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And, uh, what this may mean for us in our future, what may happen to us, uh, as, uh, you know, our, what may happen to our country or us as civilians, any, any laws that may be changed or anything like that. Um, I mean, th- this only furthers my feelings of loving my country but fearing my government. And I feel that's wrong. I feel our government should fear us. Uh, you know, we as citizens are what makes this country what it is. So, I can only hope that everyone listening would take part in trying to get everything uh
0: Wikileaks in as a whole is something I have some very mixed emotions and feelings on on one hand, there are certain critical things that i 've seen in some of the cables that have been released that yes could lead people to do things like figure out uh, who maybe some of our informants are in Afghanistan and that would put those lives at risk. And vicariously, that would put the lives of our soldiers at risk even greater than they already are. And anything that puts the life of a brother soldier, uh, sailor, airman, or marine uh, at risk um, really bothers me. On the other hand... My bigger concern with WikiLinks, other than Julian Assange and the part, the people that have given him the information, leaked the information, is what's in the information. And there is far more information that I've seen as I've gone through and reviewed some of this stuff that is damning to our government than dangerous to our troops. At, I would say, an eight to one margin at least. Some of the things that are in there, some of the things that, um, Uh, give away some of the the crap that we've been doing and the things that people like I have warned you about that our government does and been called nuts for saying it, then you get to look at it in black and white and you get to see them doing it. I I, kind of look at it this way. There was an old movie called John Q. And I think it was Denzel Washington was the main character. And he had everybody at gunpoint. And his son needed a heart transplant. And he was holding him for hostage to get his son a heart transplant. And eventually he realizes they're not going to get him a heart, or he doesn't believe they're going to get him a heart. It never ends up happening because the gun misfires or something, but he decides, I'll shoot myself. And he tells this doctor there and the kids at the hospital, when I shoot myself, give my son my heart. And of course the doctor wants no part of it. And what John Q says to the doctor is, you're going to tell me once I'm dead and a perfectly good heart there, you won't use it to save my son? And the doctor basically says, Well, if you do it, I will. I don't want you to. I don't want to be any part of this. I don't want to sanction this. But once you're dead, yeah, I'll, I'll have to. So he lays down. He's going to shoot himself. The gun doesn't go off. And just before he kills himself, uh, for real, uh, they, you know, announced that we have a heart for your son. We'll send a guy in to take care of it and what have you. So, um, that's kind of how I feel about WikiLeaks. Once the guy's dead, I'll pull his liver out and use it to save a life. And I feel that Wikileaks has a lot of things in it that we can use to make our government better. I mean, another way I look at it is our freaking government is invading every freaking part of our lives. They have cameras everywhere. They have listening devices everywhere. They're using methods of tracking, facial recognition software. And this stuff isn't slowing down at all. It's going forward. And we're having less and less ability to have a private life. It's a two-way street government. We have a right as the people to look in and see what the hell you're doing. And there are things in the WikiLeaks documents that are not only wrong, immoral, and illegal for our government to do, but flat out unconstitutional. So my belief is now that the information is out, we should be picking through these cables. And we should be finding every instance of corruption and illegality by our government, and we should be holding their feet to the frickin' fire for it. Let me say another thing the right wing of the media that are saying nonsensical shit like Julian Assange should be assassinated, these people are freaking idiots. They're idiots. Including one idiot that a lot of you guys probably like out there that I think just every time she opens her mouth, I'm like, oh my god, you didn't say that. I'll leave it to you to determine who I'm talking about. Um, Julian Assange is not a hero. But he's not a villain in deserve, deserving of being assassinated. He's not a U.S. citizen. He hasn't technically broken any U.S. laws. We set a dangerous precedent if we go out and do anything to him as a nation. He's a foreign national. He's never stepped foot in America, as far as I know. And they're not executing the uh, private that gave him the disc. I'm telling you, folks, you gotta be careful when you say that, oh, the government should do this to anybody. Because basically what he did is tell the truth. And if we set a precedent that we can kill somebody for telling the truth, what does it do to all of us long term? Basically, I think WikiLeaks is a bad thing that we could turn into a very good thing. I think that every instance of our government acting illegal, corrupt, or immoral. It needs to be dug out of those thousands and thousands and thousands of cables. We need to start calling congressmen and senators and go, okay, you know what, you can be as mad as you want about this. Why are you doing this? Huh? Why do you know there's kickbacks for opium money pouring into the Karzai government in Afghanistan, funding the resistance, paying for guns to shoot at our soldiers, and you guys are letting it go on? Why is the Fed loaning money to every nation in the world, our money, and not telling us where it's going? Why are we spying on Iceland? Why are we trying to force Iceland into the global banking system? And on and on and on it goes. It's time for us to stand up and take control of our nation back. And whether you like Assange or not, he's given us a hell of a tool to do that with. For everything that really should have been kept quiet, legitimately, there's probably eight that we needed to know about. So if you want to make a difference, dig into that stuff. Find the truth. Don't be afraid of the truth. Remember what they say about the truth. The truth shall set you free. Let's go ahead and take another call.
3: Hello, Jack. This is John from West Virginia again. I was sitting here thinking you might want to discuss the advantages of keeping quite a few dry chemical fire extinguishers around your house just in case because if the heard hits the fan you might not be able to call the fire department thanks a lot appreciate the show man we'll see you next time
0: first of all i absolutely love it when john calls in man i i dig that west virginia accent so damn much i think it's so cool and i think no one puts things in perspective like a country boy does so john thanks for calling in Thanks for being who you are. As far as your suggestion, I almost want to smack myself in the face that I really have never said much about fire extinguishers because it's so important. And I guess it's because I focus so much on disaster preparedness, it seems like it's almost like telling you to make sure that your window's closed when you go to bed at night uh, and locked. You I mean you kind of should do that on your own, but you're right. And it's more than just having the fire extinguishers. It's making sure that uh, they're functional. Uh, Because after a certain amount of time, they can lose charge and things like that, so... Uh, it's important to keep them freshly charged uh, and uh, and and having like you said multiple ones is really important. I've been to people's houses and they'll say, yeah, I got one, and it's like upstairs in the closet. Well, if the kitchen's on fire, you got to run upstairs, come back down, and that fire can do a lot of damage and grow and be a lot more dangerous by the time you get back down. So you should have a fire extinguisher in, in multiple locations in the house, definitely on a two-story house, one upstairs and one downstairs. But you should have them closely located to the areas that are most likely to initiate a fire. So if you have a fireplace somewhere in the the room with the fireplace uh, or relatively close, the kitchen, I mean, those are your two areas that are most likely uh, to need them. So absolutely, John, you're dead on. Another thing, if you have a fireplace, either get the equipment and learn to sweep your chimney yourself or have it done at least once. Once a year is best, but at least once every other year. And uh, if you have an older chimney and you haven't used it in a long time, you're thinking about using it, uh, it costs money, but it's probably worth having a guy come out there with a scope and putting it up there. Make sure there's no cracks in the chimney flue, because that's how chimney fires generally start. It's not so much the creosote on the inside of the of the, of the piping burning, because if it stays in there, it, it it can generally burn off and and maintain itself. It's dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as when there's a crack and an ember gets into that crack and on the other side and the outside of the pipe flue. And a lot of that is, a lot of times there is where it'll get into the frame of the house and start burning the substructure and get out. So fire safety really important. Probably something I should do a show on. Again, John, thanks for bringing that one up. Let's go ahead and take another call.
1: Hey, Jack, this is Jeff from St. Louis, Missouri. Lost airplane on the forum. And I wanted to get your opinion on the rocket stove. I saw one on... uh, couple of youtube videos on rocket stoves they they have ma- regular ones that're manufactured or you could just make your own out of bricks or rocks or whatever i've never heard you specifically talk about the rocket stove it looked kind of neat for an emergency uh source of cooking if you didn't have a, a regular stove all you need is a small amount of wood and a way to light it and a few bricks and you're good to go um uh, thanks talk to you later bye
0: uh, it's funny, I just actually talked about, uh, rocket mass heaters, uh, on the permaculture episode, which is just like two days ago, which is kind of a rocket stove tied into a heat distribution system. Folks, a rocket stove is pretty simple to build, though. A basic one, like, uh, the fella's talking about here, it basically, you can build them with cans. And you have one can inside another can with insulation between the two as your main, uh, kind of your, your chimney pipe deal. And then you have another smaller can that comes in from the side and uh, has a little shelf that you put your sticks and, or wood on, and you can build them from great big giant ones built out of something like a 55-gallon drum to little bitty ones built out of like paint can size stuff uh, to cook on. The thing with a rocket stove is what happens is the airflow is so balanced that the material, as it heats up and as the thermal mass of the heat chamber heats up. Again, you got one can inside another uh with something like perlite for insulation between the two. The hotter the channel gets, the more recombustion you get. And basically, the wood burns almost to 100% efficiency. There's very little ash left, no charcoal left. It's gone. And the exhaust that it produces once it gets up to temperature and running is pretty much nothing but CO2 and steam. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how efficient they are. And because of that, you can use a very small amount of material to throw an awful lot of heat, whether you're using it for cooking or for heating. So they're great. If you just go to YouTube and type in Rocket Stove, you'll find tremendous numbers of videos about people building them. Definitely a good survival skill. Definitely a great project. You guys with kids, if you want to do a cool project with your kids to get them interested in self-sufficiency and learning some science as well, Build a rocket stove with them. Great project. A rocket mass heater, like I was just mentioning, though. Now we take the rocket stove and uh, we put it right in the middle of a house. But we take the exhaust side of it where that, that CO2 and steam comes out. That stuff's very, very hot. And we pipe it through a thermal mass like a bench. And then we vent it out of the house. And we can just stack wood into that kiln. And it, it, instead of being a horizontal model like a little one you build, it's a vertical model. So basically the wood's standing straight up and you look down in a hole and there's a fire at the bottom and it's burning the wood, but the fire doesn't burn up, the draw of the heat chamber pulls the fire sideways. So no smoke comes out of the hole, even though you can look down and see the fire straight down, it burns sideways, goes into uh, the combustion chamber. Reburns the exhaust, gets up to tremendous heat. Those things will put off, you know, 500 degrees or more heat. And then that exhaust back out goes into the a, a, same kind of pipe you would make a fireplace flew out of, just like I was talking about, runs through a thermal mass, and then goes out the back of a house. So now we've combined those two technologies together. Well, what happens is we build this uh, bench, let's say, out of cob, you know, mud and straw, and we paint it, we make it look like it belongs there in the house. Well, the entire time that stove's burning, just like the rocks that the guy called in earlier about, that we just talked about, that whole bench warms up. And long after that stove kills off, that bench is radiating heat. It's kind of like a masonry heater that people asked about a few episodes ago, uh, but a little bit easier maybe to build. Um, it, but again, it's hard to retrofit something like that. Uh, but it does give you some ideas for what you could do with a greenhouse. I found a video on YouTube we're basically, they're building a greenhouse, they put a rocket mass heater in there, the pipe just runs underground, and the raised bed is built on top of the pipe. So the raised bed, the plants are growing in, becomes the thermal mass itself. Um, they didn't actually complete the project, they only did the stove part. I'll put a link to that YouTube video today. Uh, by the way, I'll throw this out. I found that video. Uh, when I found a new uh, a website that I thought was pretty cool, it has a pretty cool forum in it about permaculture called Permes.com. Again, Permes, I guess like permaculture enthusiasts are now calling themselves permies.com. And the guy that runs that site has an awesome YouTube channel. I'll link to his channel as well today. Uh, but definitely worth checking out their site and some of their discussions on permaculture and something else really cool called hyggeculture, which I'll be talking about pretty soon uh, in another episode. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the last question of the day.
1: Hey, Jack Duster, twenty-two on the forum. Love the love the program. Thanks for all you do. Question here is um, choosing a remote meeting location, like outside the neighborhood, outside the general area. You know, I've thought about you know, should we meet at a at a school or a hospital or out in a park somewhere? Um, not exactly sure what the best choice is. You know, hospitals. I mean, they're open twenty-four seven, but they're probably overwhelmed in a disaster. Um, Outside in the park, you may have uh, environmental issues if it's in the winter. So uh, I was wondering where your insight might be on coming up with uh, a good choice or how to evaluate a choice for a remote meeting location for the family. Um, that's my question. Thanks again. Have a great day.
0: So here's the problem with the question is it, 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 it doesn't – it would be impossible for me to answer it if I didn't kind of cheat and tell you the answer is you have to have multiples. Uh, I did a show a long time ago on putting together documentation and evacuation packages, and I talked about having uh, three routes out. So one may be your north, your west, and your east. Or maybe one of your northeast, one of your east, and one of your due north. Or whatever it is. And having maps with those routes planned out. And I said, you need to have a minimum of three, because you don't know where the threat's coming from, the nature of the threat you got to get out. And then I said, on each route, you should have ra- ra- rally points. But you should have three rally points per route. And for just the reason you're discovering is you start asking yourself, well, if we do a hospital and it's a pandemic, the place is going to be overwhelmed anyway, and there are going to be a lot of sick people there, and I'm not going to want to be there. Uh, if we choose a park and people are you know, you know, going crazy, there might be rioting. So what you need to do is on each evacuation route, have three locations, and a hospital might be a great place because it's easy to find, it's got a great big parking lot. Uh, generally, there's some level of security there. So if you're evacuating because, um, I don't know, of a natural disaster, and you're past the, the the sphere of that disaster as you're rallying together as a family or as a group to move forward, it might be a great location. it's a nationwide pandemic or a regional pandemic, bad spot. So it might be a rest stop on a highway. Um, it depends, again, on the route. And it's really imperative that you do what you can to maintain communication uh, during an evac. Uh, with cell phones, uh, if you have ham radios, CBs, I think one of the greatest investments, and this is something we're going to do, and I don't really know, I can't really give you a good reason for not doing it yet, but I think one of the greatest investments that you can make is putting CB radios uh, in your vehicles. You don't have the expectation of privacy that you do with some private things, but you've got really good range, you've got excellent reliability, and you've got mobile communications. Uh, and you know, you're looking at 20 mile ranges in, in that neighborhood with citizen man radio. Um, and that can often negate rallying altogether. If I can get on the horn with my wife and, and she says, I've got the boy and I've got the father-in-law and we're on the way and we're here and we're going and we're making good progress, I can say, skip the rally point, keep going. You know, I can even say, what speed are you running? And she can say, well, we're, we're running 70. now." i say, tell you what, back off, run 50, and I'll run 70. I'm four miles behind you. When I catch up, we'll pull, you know. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to having some level of communication capability. Um, and Citizen Band is one way to do that. Now, all the channels could get jammed. I mean, again, remember what I said earlier about what if? Um, so the way we contingency plan for what ifs, as we say, what if this, well then that, well what if this, then that, like troubleshooting. So if we have three rally points, odds are one of them is going to be suitable for rallying together at. And generally, if the, if the first one's suitable, you're going to stop at the, the nearest one and, and try to get communication or or link up. But this is something I've always said. Um, if you can come up with some kind of a sign that's a family crest or something unique, anything that wouldn't be perceived as valuable that just might look like junk but would be easy to spot and distinctive. So obviously a Coke can would not qualify because there could be a Coke can anywhere. But if you've gotten to a rally point, you can't maintain, you can't sync up communications, you guys have to have an agreement that after you know the other one doesn't show up for a certain amount of time, we're going to continue on and we're going to leave that symbol there. And that way, if I come along and I see that, well, I know my wife or my partner or whoever has been there and gone on, and I'm not going to wait. And I'm going to keep trying to establish communication. So the big thing is your rally points have multiple rally points. Um, but have a primary one. Have one that this is where everybody goes unless we all know it ain't going to work. But the big one is try to have as many secondary communications technologies at your disposal as possible taking a ham course is probably a great idea but there are shortcuts again citizen bad you go down you have it installed it's there i'm definitely going to put one in both trucks probably one in the car too so i'll be uh, cbing it from the jetta when we occasionally use that vehicle for long distance trips uh with that that does wrap up today's show these are great questions guys remember if you want to be on the air the number is 866 866- 65 think that's because we encourage you to think i don't tell you what to think i help you figure out how to think based on what you believe for yourself and why my, my big thing is and the reason i always talk about thinking is you can believe whatever you want you can disagree with me, but for the love of God, know why you believe what you believe. If more Americans knew why they believe what they believe, we could have intelligent debates and we could solve problems and we wouldn't be bullshitted and lied to by our government and the establishment on a daily basis. And just maybe if we could all get Americans thinking first, we could take this country back. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough, or even if they don't.